listening to Law and Gospel on this Friday, August the 25th in the year of our Lord, 2023. And we're going to be taking a look at an email that we have received from Bill Adams. And it's entitled, Forgiveness. Very simple or highly complex. He begins by talking about many have heard of the Nazi hunter, Simon Wiesenthal. He's famous for tracking down Nazi perpetrators of the Holocaust and bringing them to justice. But fewer know of Wiesenthal's wrestling with the conundrum of justice versus forgiveness. The beginning of of his inner struggle is documented in his 1969 book, The Sunflower, on the possibilities and limits of forgiveness. The author tells of when he was a Polish-Jewish concentration camp prisoner assigned as an orderly disposing of medical waste at a German field hospital. Unexpectedly, a young SS soldier near death from his wounds summoned Wiesenthal to his bedside. He proceeded to confess all his trespasses, including aiding in the murder of 300 Jewish women and children who had been herded into a house set ablaze and gunned down when they tried to escape the hellish flames. The German soldier was seeking forgiveness from the Jewish individual, Simon Wiesenthal. His final words to the prisoner I know, I know that what I'm asking is almost too much for you, but without your answer, I cannot die in peace. Mentally dazed from malnutrition, cruel treatment, and the surreal nature of this confession, Weisenthal is dumbfounded as to what is what he should say or do. In the end, he says nothing, leaves the room, and spends the rest of his life wondering what he should have done. In order to figure out what he should have done, he began asking prison mates, then professional colleagues, and finally thinkers around the globe from every walk of life. He spent decades in a relentless quest to understand forgiveness, and the result is his book, The Sunflower. There he documents the many responses to the questions that tormented him. Should he have forgiven the dying soldier? What could he have even said 
that would absolve the man's guilt. Does a Nazi murderer, though sorrowful, even deserve forgiveness? Can you forgive a crime that was not against yourself, but against others? And what about justice? Wouldn't forgiveness undermine justice? But couldn't he at least have tried to help a desperate man die in peace? Well, the more that you contemplate Wiesenthal's moral dilemma, the more you are struck that the matter of forgiveness is either very simple or quickly becomes highly complex. The simple side of forgiveness comes from the root meaning of the word forgive, to cancel a debt. At its root, forgiveness is really that simple. When we forgive someone, we are canceling their debt to us, whether material or emotional. And therefore, we go away free and full of life. But if I pause to consider the injustice of the matter, one can grow troubled and unsure if forgiveness is the way to go. As a pastor, I've run into people at times where someone has done something wrong to them, either by an action or a word. And I ask them, have you forgiven that person? And they say, no. And I ask, why haven't you forgiven them? Because they haven't repented of what they have done. See, this is where Christianity is totally different because God forgives you before you repent. Well, the proof of that is the cross itself. At the cross, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. It is while we do not know what we are doing that forgiveness is so important. That's why the Nazi soldier, when he killed those 300 people, he really didn't know what he was doing. But the Jew, Weisenthal, could not forgive him because in Jewish theology, there is no back, backing up of forgiveness without justice taking place. How can you cancel a debt and still be just? Justice is something you execute. Forgiveness is something you extend. One person put it this way. When I forgive someone, 
I take them off my hook and put them on God's hook. What does that mean? In forgiveness, we believe that our sins are forgiven because of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. The complex side of forgiveness comes from trying to forgive out the how, the why, the when, the where, the how far, and how much, and the how, how often. Meanwhile, there's no question as to how important the act of forgiveness is to Jesus of Nazareth. Central to his simple yet profound teaching is how we are to pray. Matthew 6, 12. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then you have that verses that follow the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, 14 to 15. If you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, I know of a number of people, some even Christians, who cannot understand that they are to forgive because they feel, well, the person has not repented yet and I simply don't like him. But we need to understand what forgiveness is. It's turning their debt over to Jesus. Remember what the disciples were given on the night of the resurrection. Whosoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven. Whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. How are we to retain sins? We retain sins when someone we want to forgive does not think that what they did was a sin. And therefore, they don't understand the forgiveness of sins from Jesus. Remember the soldier said, I need to hear you tell me I'm forgiven so that I can die in peace. That's the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the message that this particular writer does, Bill Adams. He's known as a bridge builder within the Jewish community. Now, what does that mean? Well, we actually have in St. Louis a church of Jews that celebrate Christianity. Now, I've attended that church and they often use the various festivals in the Jewish Old Testament and Christianize them in their worship. 
but they are Jews who now believe that Jesus is the Christ. So when we ask God to forgive us, as we forgive those who have sinned against us, what it means is not that we feel good towards the people who have sinned against us, nor does it mean that we want to be friends with them. They may have done something that is very wrong. I've used the example of a store owner whose daughter is in the store and robbers come in and in the process of robbing the store, they shoot the daughter. Now they get arrested and are in jail. Can that store owner forgive them? What he does is forgive them without realizing it. Because forgiveness means that you don't hold a person personally responsible for your sin. Which means if you hold them personally responsible, you want to take revenge. But what the store owner did is after his daughter was shot, he phoned the police. They came, they ended up arresting the robber. He was taken to court. A jury declared him guilty and a judge gave him a sentence. The store owner didn't do anything in the sense of taking revenge. That's forgiveness. He may not like the guy anymore. He may not want to be around him, but he did not take personal revenge. As we've said about the word forgiveness, it means that you are no longer held accountable for your sin. And that's because Jesus was held accountable. That leads us to our second email that we received from Reverend Jesse Burns. And it's a Bible study on Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 to 26. Many of you know that one of my favorite books in the New Testament is Galatians because it clearly distinguishes between law and gospel. St. Paul writes in chapter 5, verse 1, For freedom Christ has set us free. What he means by that, that because of the forgiveness of sins that a Christian receives from Christ Jesus, the Christian is declared righteous before God. You do not need to look to your works of the law in order to have a clear conscience before God. In fact, when you think of your disobedience to the law, it appears that you can't have a clear conscience. 
but through faith in Christ Jesus, the Christian's conscience is free. In fact, the Bible says, believers in this life are not perfectly holy and completely renewed, even though their sin is completely covered by the perfect obedience of Christ, so that sin is not reckoned to them as damning. They will not spend any time in hell, even though the killing of the old creature and the renewal of their minds in the spirit has begun. You see, our old Adam, that is our old creature, still continues to hang on in their nature and in all of its inward and outward powers. In other words, those of us who have faith in Christ are justified before God, yet continue to have the old sinful nature. Luther's small catechism teaches us that our baptism into Christ works forgiveness of sins, rescues from death and the devil, and gives eternal salvation to all who believe. But it also indicates that the Christian life, it involves an ongoing struggle between the old creature and the new man. It indicates that the old Adam in us should by daily contrition and repentance be drowned and die with all sins and evil desires, and that a new man should daily emerge and arise to live before God. This is the day-to-day -day life of the redeemed. Now, we need to understand what it means to live in the Spirit. It is not a sin when temptation comes to us. Uh, for example, we pastors have worked with individuals who like to watch pornography on television or on other things. And when they get that desire, that desire is in and of itself not sin. Jesus, because of the temptation of Satan, was faced with a desire to follow the works of Satan rather than the works of his father. He made a decision and use the Bible to speak against Satan's desires. So, how does an individual who is confronted with pornography, how does he leave it up to the spirit? Well, he simply doesn't buy those films 
he doesn't go to see them at peep shows, etc. He refuses to go. That is of the spirit. So do not think that when you are tempted to sin, that that in and of itself is sin. The only time it can be sin without doing it is when you have thoughts that are impure and unclean and you don't shake them off. You see, as Luther explains, it's very beneficial when we become aware of the evil of our nature because in this way, we are aroused and stirred up to have faith and to call upon Christ. Those who become aware of the desires of their flesh should not immediately despair of their salvation on that account. It's all right for them to be aware of the desires of the flesh, but they are not to assent to the desires. In fact, the godlier a Christian is, the more aware he is of this conflict. Why might it be that as one grows in the faith, he becomes more aware of the old Adam's struggle against the spirit? How can this awareness ultimately prove beneficial to the Christian? In verses 19 and 20 of Galatians 5, Paul speaks of the works of the flesh, and he provides a list of examples, sternly warning that those who persist to do such works will not inherit the kingdom of God. Luther's comment, it is one thing to be aroused by the flesh, but not to tolerate its desires any further but to walk and to withstand by the Spirit. It's quite another thing to give in to the flesh and to do its work with a smug air, to persist in them, and yet at the same time to put on a pretense of piety, even to make a boast of the Spirit. Remember, that's what Adam and Eve did when they were confronted with the temptation to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they changed it not as an excuse to sin against God, but as a reason to become like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. The difference between struggling with temptation and persistently doing the works of the flesh is that when one persists in sin, what is a Christian response when one falls into temptation? It is necessary to the highest degree for such a dreadful and fearful sentence 
to be pronounced by the apostle against men who in their smug disdain and stubborn hypocrisy continue to sin. You see, that's why in preaching, we instill the dread and fear of God. Because as a person becomes more of the old Adam's struggle against the spirit, he can become aware, driven by the gift of the Holy Spirit, not to do the works of the flesh. It is one thing to be aroused by the flesh. It's another thing to follow it. As long as we live in the flesh, we Christians will have the battle raging within us between the new man, the man of faith, and the old Adam, our sinful nature. We are able to struggle in this battle and have no need to despair of our salvation. Why? For our salvation depends solely on Christ's righteousness alone. As Luther says, our righteousness is more abundant than our sin because the holiness and the righteousness of Christ, our propitiator, vastly surpasses the sin of the entire world. Therefore, we are enabled to forgive sins as believers in Christ because that sin is attached to the cross of Christ and God takes care of it from there. The forgiveness of sins which we have through Jesus is so great, so abundant, and so infinite that it easily swallows up every sin as we persevere in faith and hope towards Jesus. Great study on Galatians chapter five, and we'll continue with a law and gospel study this coming Monday. I'm Tom Baker. God bless you. Listen to Law and Gospel each weekday morning at 9.30 on KFUO. For a tax-deductible gift to Law and Gospel, please make your checkout to Law and Gospel and mail to Law and Gospel P.O. Box 28910, St. Louis, Missouri, 63132, or call toll-free 1-877-267-1962. Views and opinions expressed on Worldwide KFUO may not represent the official position of the management or ownership of KFUO, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. If you'd like to comment on programs or topics heard on Worldwide KFUO, write us at KFUO, 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. You can also leave a question or comment on our comment line at 314-996-1542. We are the messenger of good news, Worldwide KFUO.